Hey everybody, welcome to episode 13 of the What Are You Doing podcast with Dave O'Leary and Nick Nessel. I think we have a great episode today. We're interviewing the founder of Moco Furniture, uh, which is going to be the next IKEA of Africa. So we're joined today with Fiorenzo Conte, and uh, he takes us through the whole process of starting from scratch, um, and being in a foreign country, knowing you want to open a business, and not even actually even sure what product you want to sell. Uh, so we go through that, working with a co-founder. He has some interesting insights into the Kiva process for raising money. And we also dive into marketing and just understanding that whole world as well. Uh, so it's really interesting. And if nothing else, uh, he has a great Italian accent that you'll enjoy listening to for the next hour or so. Hi, guys. Hey, how's it going? It's good, thanks. How are you guys? Glad to be on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. So, if you, I was wondering, um, and we'll get to know you over the hour. Maybe uh, you could give us a, a bit more detail of, you know, what what you're doing now with Moco Furniture, and then you know from there we'll, we'll dive into that and we'll we'll kind of hear your story as well. Yeah, sure. So Moco Furniture is a furniture company. We're based in Kenya, um, and uh, so our big dream, uh, which is the way I described it to my grandma, who asked me like, "What am I doing in Africa?" In two words, is to become the IKEA of Africa. Um, and I use the metaphor of the IKEA. Our aspiration is really to create furniture that a lot of people can afford, and also the quality that they deserve. Um, so we target the mass market, which is really like people living on $100 to $800 uh, per month. Um, and we want to create like sofas or beds or mattresses that these people can afford at the quality that today is beyond their reach. Um, so that's our dream. Uh, we've been around for three years now. Um, and really what we've been doing these three years has been building up the supply chain uh, so that we like in a better position later to be able to do like the furniture uh, that we want to make at the price point that also the, our customers uh, can afford. It sounds like a, a super interesting thing. And I have just only a vague sense myself of, holy cow, that sounds really difficult. You mentioned the supply chain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, from, from what I know of, of, of living in Africa and, and, and working in Kenya a, a bit, like when you say we're, we're getting the supply chain working, um, <laughs> I know that that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, that's no small task. But before we get into those details, I, I'm curious. So how did you even get in get into this this field? Um, we worked together before, three years. You left the Demagi where we worked together to come start this. And I'm pretty sure when you left Demagi the last time we chatted, that you were not a carpenter and you were, had no experience making furniture. <laughs> That's correct. Has not changed yet, I think. <laughs> so, how, how do you even how do you even transition into something like this? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. It's a question that I get all the time from my family. I've been trying to answer the question very unsuccessfully so far. Uh, so, give it a try again. Feel uh, <laughs> free to say like few ways. What you're talking about? Uh, so my journey has been. So I'm originally from Italy, uh, from uh, Naples. The city in the south is a very chaotic city. Has a lot of like energy, and people don't really like a lot of order. Uh, so I grew up there, and in my first idea or like what I want to do when I uh, grew up was to become uh, a diplomat, like an ambassador. And so I studied actually political science. Then I realized like very soon that wasn't my thing. 
Uh, and so I got into more into international development and public health. Um, and so actually my first experience in Africa was in Benin, which is like a small country next to Nigeria. I was working in microfinance um, and um, NGO, and we were like distributing uh, loans to farmers uh, in rural Benin. Um, and so that was my first experience. Uh, then my passion was really about public health. And so then I ended up in uh, Kenya, uh, in the Western part of Kenya. Uh, and at the time I was working uh, this NGO, we were as a call community-based organization. So what they do, like they sort of like help uh, people, particularly in the public health space. And so we were providing, it's called home-based care for HIV AIDS patients. So you sort of like help these patients to follow the treatment uh, because it's a very like tr tricky uh, treatment to follow. Um, so there was a six months experience and then I ended up for the UN working for UNICEF, um, so, which is like a big jump. But can, I, can I ask you, Theo, you, uh, yeah, sure. you mentioned, so you were like, well, I was in Benin and then I, I ended up over here. How does that process go? Is that you kind of, did you know like my drive is I want to be doing healthcare in Africa and so I'm seeking out these opportunities or like how, how, how do you actually transition between those different Yeah, things? so I think what brought me to Africa in the first place was I studied international development, which is really about like, you know, um, studying about emerging markets, like emerging countries and Africa was like popping up a lot. Um, and I think it was as you work in the UN, like out of this like big organization, uh, you will work about making policy uh, regarding these countries and I really felt like I didn't have any context about these countries and so I really, I really want to leave uh, uh, particularly like in Africa as well like trigger my interest. Um, in terms of uh, the field like public health is something like that strikes me, I don't know there's some like the indicators like the infant mortality rate or like HIV AIDS uh, rate. Uh, I felt like a lot of like the inequality between the world, I felt like it was very unfair. And so public health was really like the field where you could feel or you could touch a lot of these uh, differences. Um, and so it felt to me like one of the field where um, I kind of like felt passionate about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's like a lot of like really the study that I did. I actually started in London um, and a lot of the study that I did like drove my initial interest at the initial stage of the, of the career that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, then public health uh, was like HIV AIDS here in Kenya. Um, then I got the opportunity to have, to do a fellowship with UNICEF. Uh, I don't know how is it in other parts of the world, but like growing up in Italy, uh, working for the UN as a sort of a dream job. Um, uh, people really believe into the mission of the UN. Uh, I still believe in the mission of the UN. Um, and so I was very excited uh, of joining UNICEF. Uh, and I actually ended up in the Middle East uh, I was working in uh, Lebanon, uh, and it was at the time that uh, the Syrian conflict just broke out. Uh, and so a lot of the work of the UN agencies in Lebanon was about um, emergency response for the Syrian refugees that were coming in Lebanon. And Lebanon had a very interesting setup because uh, people, refugees, were not living in refugee camps, they were just settling down in the cities in Lebanon. So there I was working for the public health emergency sort of unit. Um, and it actually boiled down to sort of vaccinating children that were coming in the country. Um, it was a very, very interesting experience. Um, I think you, you get exposure to uh, work with Ministry of Health and, and actually doing things at a very big scale. Um, the thing that I did not like is that it's a very bureaucratic organization, um, particularly at the time in, in Lebanon. And um, so it's very slow to to, to sort of like improve, implement things and then improve on the things that you do. 
And fundamentally, I found myself like not believing anymore, like in the model, uh, because I found ourselves like spending a lot of time talking to donors or to Ministry of Health. I didn't find any of our time like be spent talking to the end consumer of our services, which would be like people getting vaccinated, um, or just like the family of the children they were getting vaccinated. Um, just to ask like if the service was good enough, um, or like ways that we should improve our service. And so I felt that there was missing like a feedback loop and we were just not trying to listen to the people that we're supposed to serve uh, to be able to, um, to do like to do it better next time. And so we just like ended up doing the same things over and over again um, and spending a lot of time just being accountable to the people that were giving us uh, the money to do the things. Um, and so I, I felt that uh, one year UNICEF was like a good experience. I didn't uh, want to continue uh, stay longer uh, with them. And so I bumped um, into this organization called Dimagi. You probably have heard uh, about them before. Uh, I know that Corey was on this podcast uh, as well. Uh, yeah, I think I've mentioned as well. That is my current for those listening. Yeah. <laughs> no conflict of interest. Uh, but so, so yeah, Dimagi felt a good transition. He was still in the public health space. I still felt passionate about public health. Um, he was a social enterprise. Uh, it was like a mobile technology company. And I think what I found attracting, attractive before joining Dimagi, but particularly as, uh, while I was there at Dimagi, uh, was really the focus that you have on the end users and the focus that you need to have and also the discipline that you need to have, like creating a products that people want to use. Um, otherwise, you'll be out of business. Um, and also the focus on innovating your product to be like up to date and just like to engage more and more of your user, your user like expanding your customer base, but also just like the same user, like to make sure that they keep using uh, your product. Um, and so what I like is the accountability to the end customers uh, that sort of like the private approach forces you to have, uh, which I did not see in the nuanced systems. Um, but also the, the sort of like lean approach that a social enterprise or like a startup can have. Um, I remember, so I, with Dimagi, I was working in West Africa, so I ended up in, in Senegal, um, on the West Coast of Africa. And, uh, and I remember it was just like me and another person, and we arrived there, and um, one of the, sort of like the management team came from Boston, and we were asking about like, you know, with which organization we should try to work. And the answer from our manager at the time was, you know, just ask yourself, what would you like to do? And if your answer is, yes, I would like to do that, then just go ahead and do it, uh, which I just loved it. <laughs> I was sort of like uh, my ideal approach to work. Um, and so then, yeah, I stayed with Dimagi for uh, three years, uh, mainly working in the public health space because Dimagi focused on like, mobile health. Um, so then what brought me to furniture was sort of like the jump that a lot of people still find like a bit uh, <laughs> like puzzling. <laughs> uh, was that, so, um, yes. So, so at this point, you, you kind of started at, uh, I guess, more in the public sector. You started with NGOs, moved to UNICEF, and then you started drifting more towards like private social enterprise, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, correct. And so at this point now, where are you living? Are you, you were in Kenya at this point? Uh, no, I was. Uh, so yeah, I moved to Kenya. I was still with Dimagi, uh, but I already knew that I wanted to start something else. Uh, mm -hmm. And so actually I convinced uh, my boss at Dimagi to sort of like move me to Kenya. <laughs> um, but I think that I kind of came up with a decision while I was still in Senegal. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so then 
so how do you how do you get to i know what i do i'll make furniture i'll do that (laughs) so i think there are a couple of factors so one is more than on the so like i would say idealistic uh level which is sort of like what's the impact that i want to make in the world uh and then the second one is more like what do i enjoy in the day-to-day uh and what type of work do i enjoy uh, so in terms of like idealistic level, so I I worked quite a bit in the public health, um, and I realized so particularly living in in so like emerging market countries, um, a lot of the public health diseases are really driven by an underlying condition of poverty, um, and so I felt that sometimes you know like making sure that like certain drugs are available in the health uh, centers would treat the symptoms but not the root cause uh, of the problem, um, and so I felt that. Um, particularly in the industry, like what's what's called the aid industry, which is the UN and NGOs, there's a lot of focus on strengthening the social system, which is education system, the healthcare systems, uh, but there's no focus on sort of like uh, addressing the underlying cause, which is fundamentally creating prosperity so that people can um, can get out of the poverty trap and can get out right. of what's driving, you know, like low education and low health. Mm-hmm. I remember like all the time my, you know, Italy now is a very like uh, a developed country, but the story that I get from my grandpa, like he, he grew up during the war, it was very poor, had like no food to eat. Um, and it, Italy made it like we, we made it as a family and what actually brought Italy to like a level of prosperity was actually industries coming and creating jobs and creating prosperity. Um, and so I felt that sometimes what's missing like in a narrative in some of these emerging markets countries is really like asking the question, what can, can create prosperity so that people can have like better income uh, and just like, you know, improve their nutrition and which uh, will have a like, knock on impact on the health as well. And so I felt that, you know, governments cannot create business. They cannot like, they can facilitate the creation of jobs, but they cannot do it themselves. And I thought they're creating a business in Africa, uh, could have like the biggest impact in terms of like the creation of the jobs. Um, and I know that sometimes I talk to my friends like, where you working for the UN and now you're making sofas? I don't see the connection. <laughs> uh, but it's not like the, the line that I draw uh, between uh, the two, uh, because I think that fundamentally, so like giving people a stable job, it's what's gonna you know increase the income and just like afford and enable them to have like a better lifestyle and therefore also like a better affordable education, but also have a, a better health. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's more like an holistic side on what's driving me. Um, in terms of uh, why I want to do it is I really like enjoyed try something new like trailblazing and like try things up. Um, and so, you know, demand at the time like was growing. So we had to be like more focused on what we're doing. Uh, whereas I realized, I realized I just want to try new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I realized like just starting. Uh, and I think also like the exploration phase of like come, understanding a new industry and understanding what's the gap in the industry, understanding like what's the need from the user perspective. Um, and so I think I liked the journey and I thought that starting a business was the best way to sort of like embark on the journey again. Why furniture is because um, we did market research. That's my my question. (laughs) Uh, So we did market research in Kenya and actually we had a lot of ideas that we tested and it was me and my uh, co-founder as one of my best friends and we kind of sat down and was like, what do we want to do? And I think the... um, we really come up with like different ideas. Like I remember like one of the products, one of the idea that we tested 
was product for natural hair. It's a very, the, like the hair market in, in Africa is very big. Uh, another product uh, idea that we tried to test it was like a sort of CVS um, model. Uh, so here in Kenya, you have a big supermarket, you have like very small informal shops. And we felt that something in between was missing. So like a convenience shop uh, where you can buy drugs, but you can also shop for your daily uh, like groceries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we looked into the model. Um, we looked into sort of like food distribution. Uh, we looked into shirts. I'm Italian, so I was looking to like fashion stuff, <laughs> clothing. Um, and then we looked into furniture. And uh, furniture just felt uh, like one of the advantages he had was that it's a very big market. It's already there. It's like around like $700 million, uh, the industry today. Um, so the market is there. Uh, there was a very tangible uh, problem um, as perceived by the consumer. Um, but since the industry is there, there's also the know-how of like how to do things. Um, and so when you combine these all things, uh, it felt the furniture was like, it made like most of the business uh, sense. So I did not grow up dreaming to make sofas in my childhood, <laughs> uh, but I'm enjoying them today. So can I, can I ask you, so that's an interesting process. So you, you mentioned there, um, it's, it's like, yeah, so we didn't come to this saying my passion is furniture and yeah. I'm going to figure out how to build a, a furniture company. You, you came at this from the approach of, uh, I believe in entrepreneurship in, in Kenya yeah, is something mm -hmm. that will, will drive this. Uh, but then what you said is, so we did research on these three or four different things. I, I think that's the part that's really interesting to me is it doesn't sound like you had a significant business background. Nope. <laughs> when you're sitting there and saying, I, I did research, I think that's the part where like everyone, everyone is really good all the time at saying, oh, I, you know, you hear people, oh, I had that idea. Oh, I had that idea. And like yeah. everyone, everyone can have that idea of, you know, boy, Kenya is ripe for entrepreneurship. But how do you, uh -huh. without the experience, like what did you actually do to, to, to research these other things? Yeah, and I think for us, so I was like enough, like my co-founder is a very like uh, data person. Uh, and so he was looking more like the market size, like what's the margin on these products? Uh, and I was approaching more for like the people side, like what's the problem for like the people perspective, like what's really like their met need and also their met inspiration for like the people side. Um, so I think, so just for the furniture, um, so I, I guess we did like two main things. So the first was to do like focus group discussions with uh, consumers. And so we we sort of like came up with a sort of segmentation of the market. Then sometimes we're just stopping people uh, on the street and say like, can we talk to you? Uh, sometimes we go like through, you know, referrals. Um, and then we were just asking them like, you know, tell us more about the time that you bought furniture. Um, tell, like, tell me more about the process. Um, and then, you know, as, as they were recalling their experience, which I like to dive deeper and, and, and sort of like understanding what's really the problem uh, perceived by uh, the consumers. Uh, then when, when it kind of was clear to us that people were not happy with the furniture that they were getting, but also with the experience, uh, just the buying experience is a very time consuming experience because basically you have to go to like a small artisan, like showing the, the design and then micromanage the project because um, sometimes they will get your deposit, but they will forget about making your actual sofa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and sometimes you have to follow up all the time. 
Um, yeah, so like a big part of it was actually just like following, uh, understanding the consumer perspective on things. Um, you know, we did that for furniture, but we did that. I remember just for like two months, I was just talking to a lot of people about different things. Um, be that and, like, you know, the clothing or be that the furniture. Yeah. Theo, at this time, are you, are you still working for Demagi or are you? Yeah. At the time I was working part-time, I was very lucky that Dimagi, I guess Dimagi is a very, like, encourage a lot of entrepreneurship. And so they were very, uh, I was very lucky to sort of, like, have the opportunity to work part-time for Dimagi. Uh, and uh, at the same time, um, doing the research. And I think, as like anyone out there that likes considering to make the jump, I think if you have the opportunity, particularly for the first, like, three months to six months, as you're doing the research uh, to work part-time or to do that on the side. I, I remember I was doing a lot of the research on Sundays uh, just because I had more time. Uh, but so like it takes away a lot of the stress of like, oh my gosh, I'm running out savings. I have to start like something soon. Uh, yeah. So like it gives you more time to look into the ideas uh, and then to have the clarity to say like, okay, now I think this is it. And when you know this is it, then that's the time that you need to do the jump uh, because it's very difficult to execute on the idea while you're working part-time. But doing the research, it's, it works. Yeah, this is interesting. We've had this discussion um, in the past. Specifically, I, I kind of stumbled into this. I had, um, just for your background, I had left Morningstar, which was a company I had worked for my entire career, and I moved back from South Africa to start um, to co-found a, a financial advisory practice, which I, I've subsequently left. But that period of time, I went from you know full salary to, to none. And my yeah. wife had a baby, she was on maternity leave, and then she went for an extended leave. So we basically were for the period of time just literally on zero income. And I uh -huh. had some savings saved up and all that. But like you're spending through it and the pressure is increasing, increasing. And um, and I got to the point I left that um, practice that I had co-founded to start my own um, separately. But at the same time, I had an opportunity for which I which I accepted to work for a large charitable organization, and I'm uh -huh. I do that in a sixty percent capacity. But that for me, I viewed it at the time when I was like thinking about do I take this job at sixty percent of my time is going to consume, pro and and realistically, it's going to take more than that because I'm not going to sort of you know check in and check out. Um, yeah. So. It was like, oh, this is going to take away all my time and effort and uh, distract me. And like, I was thinking about all the negatives, and I was very scared about taking it. But it was an exciting opportunity, and I, and I ended up doing it. But it really, I realized after the fact how valuable that was for me because what it allowed me to do was all of a sudden take all the pressure off of having to make like decisions for short-term profit yeah. and say, how would I build this if I didn't care about? Gener like if I didn't need to turn a profit tomorrow and that freed me up to really build the business the way that I wanted to. And I, I had not anticipated that at all in advance. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that approach. And I think, um, it totally resonates with me. Um, just to give you the full story, uh, my business partner actually he quit his job, uh, before as he was doing like the market research. Okay. Um, he felt like, you know, he had like enough saving on the side and he really wanted yeah. to like invest hundred percent of his time in the market research. Uh, so I think it's sort of like what works, uh, for you. Uh, I think in general, like, you know, when you start a business, um, one needs to keep in mind, like it, it might take a while to figure out like, what's the idea. And so it's yeah. really up to you is like how much compromise you want to do like on your daily life, <laughs> right. um, before you can actually do the, the job full time. 
you know, it's just, it's funny. I, I, I'm pausing here for a sec just because like, this is a common um, topic and you'll hear like wildly different views on this. Like I've read and heard like respected entrepreneurs who talk yeah. about, Oh, you, like, listen, if you, the only thing you do is you, you, you quit, you go all in or nothing. And like, yeah, you know, to drop your job, you just take a dive into the deep end. And I feel like that's, like that may work for some people. It's fine, but I don't think that at all is just a given or or at all necessary even. Um, and and to some degree, what I had noticed was the negatives of that is that it forces you to be a lot more thinking a lot more short term, unless you just happen yeah, to be exactly. wealthy yeah. where you don't have to worry about it. No, I agree. I think particularly for the macro research phase, like when you're at the stage of you really want to be as detached as possible from like any of these ideas. Like, you know, I'm researching this idea. If it fails, it's fine, right? I because right. otherwise you're just gonna like enter this like confirmation bias uh, tunnel. Mm. It's like, oh, this idea, like if you if you're looking for a specific problem, you'll probably find it at some point. Like you just like frame your story yeah. so that the problem that you want to find, you'll actually find it. <laughs> Um, well and so I think for my side, uh, I think for my side, uh, having this sort of like, look, I don't need to do anything now. I just want to see, you know, in the medium term, like which idea will work, um, you know, be able to work part time, like give you, give me like that perspective of things. Awesome. So how does, how does that process work with a business partner? <laughs> I, I would imagine, <laughs> I, I mean, is there ever a point where he was saying, no, you got to go all in on this hair thing. Come on. I've already quit my job. Like. How, how do you, do you have any struggles of being on the same page there? How do you keep on the same page? Yeah, so I think, okay, we were lucky because we were like best friends uh, before, so we kind of like knew each other. Uh, and I think we sort of like set a petition clearly in advance. Um, and I think for both of us, uh, we knew it like, you know, we want something that works in the medium term, like maybe we can embark something. Um, and I think for us both, like we had a, we defined the, well, the long vision of the business, right? So we say like we want a business that can go at scale. It can reach like a lot of people. I think when you start a business, you can decide like you can do like a niche market. So you can do the, you can be the Armani or the Gucci or the Apple. You know, you sell to uh, fewer people, like a higher um, price point. Um, and you just, you know, you'll be in direct contact with your customers. Uh, or you can be so like the mass market. You satisfy 80% of the needs of your markets, um, but you want to reach as many people as possible. You want to be sort of like a more like democratic organization in the approach. Um, and so we never like sat down and say like, look, this is the checklist. Unless the idea ticks all these boxes, we won't go ahead. Um, but we did have in mind this like clear idea. And I think that helps to say like, look, there's some, um, this idea, let's say for the, we call it the CVS idea, it seems to be promising, um, but we don't have like enough like data right now mm -hmm. to like call the shot. Um, and so, yeah, so I think also helped like we knew each other. So like even, we didn't have to say like, look, I don't agree. We kind of like understood each other. Um, and so I think we never had a moment where like, look, I think now we need to start on this idea. We have like enough data points. Yeah. Uh, it was just like a discussion. And, and at some point I was like, I think now it's, we're ready to, to make them move. So what, what was your, what was your time horizon? Like when you guys sat down and said, <sighs> okay, you know, or were you saying this is a five year thing? We don't even care if, you know, we, we don't think we could declare to set success for five years or did you think like you know after a year or two years we should be showing yeah so i think we... yeah so i think the approach was um okay so basically like, actually i can also give you the 10 years which is deeper for the five years <laughs> so the All five right, years yeah, was 
So uh, I start for the five. So the five was, you know, we want to be a brand recognized by a lot of people. We want to reach like uh, the mass market. Um, but at the same time, you know, in the short terms, we understand like, you know, we don't come from very wealthy family. This is the savings that we have. So we do want a company that can generate uh, like revenue and profit in a short amount of time. And so there was definitely a criteria. Like I know like a lot of, I know for example, Dimag is a social enterprise and they also, you know, I think they're creating a market, they try to validate the market. And so as you set up to create a market, you know that it's going to take much longer to start generating revenue. Um, and for that, you know, you will need investors and donors that buy into your vision and they will allow you to have the time to create the market. Uh, and also to create the awareness from the people perspective. Um, we we wanted something, and that's why we went for the furniture because the market was there. Um, we I think the approach for us like we want to be able to generate revenue in the short term because we want to have the luxury of being free of deciding in which direction to take the company, um, and also having some sort of like independence um, financially from investors. Um, and so definitely there was a criteria. So like in the next year or two, we want some sort of revenue and maybe like third year to achieve like profitability as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's sort of like what pushed us away from what some people define more like social impact. So I think, for example, there's a lot of uh, solar energy, which today maybe they're more like private oriented. Uh, but there's definitely, you know, two or three years, five years ago was more like a market that you had to create because the market was not there. And so, you know, if you start such a business, then you have to take into account it will take like much longer to achieve uh, revenue. Mm -hmm. Then at the same time, so there was like three years, so like, okay, we want to have revenue and profitability. Then five years, we want to be like a mass market company. Um, then I guess like 10 years, we might be like more 15 years. Um, it's really about like, we don't want to be bound to like one idea. Um, so the big dream that we have is to build a big campus here in Nairobi, sort of alphabet of Google. And so <laughs> you have like different complementary ideas that you can sort of incubate and then spin off. Um, I mentioned my passion for like trailblazing. So that's in line uh, with that. Um, yeah. And so it's sort of, sort of, I was like, let's start somewhere. Uh, I, we think still, for example, the CVS model as a future. Uh, and so for us, it was like, look, it's not that we're saying no forever to this idea. We can just like try it later if it's the opportunity is still there. Uh, so I think that also helps to sort of like saying, okay, we can start from here. It doesn't have to exclude all the other ideas that we researched. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so did, I think the other thing is when you're looking at those plans, and I, I think this is something I heard uh, with Ferris, the, the four-hour work week guy, he's saying, um, also considering like, okay, well, what's their worst case scenario here? And I'm, I'm wondering like, as you're going into it, um, for me and my painting, for instance, I'm like, well, the worst case scenario is I spend a few thousand bucks, I end up hating it. And so I stop, right? Or yeah. <laughs> for, for Dave on, on the, when we've talked before on the podcast, Dave has kind of said like, well, you know, my worst case scenario is I try this thing, it doesn't work, but I've I've at least still gained all of this experience and notoriety, and I'm yeah. sure I could like go back and get my my old job, right? Um, I'm curious, like, <laughs> did you guys have that conversation at the start as like business partners? Like, where where what's the line we draw? Like, where do we quit this? Like, how do we handle yeah. the the worst case? Yeah, so I think for us the. So, okay, so furniture has a lot of advantages. Uh, one of the disadvantages, it was a bit like capital intensive to set it up. 
just because you know you have to rent a warehouse, uh, you have to buy some. The machine was a big cost, but like you have to buy the materials that we were selling in the market, but you have to buy in bulk to have a good a mm -hmm. good margin. Um, and so actually, um, so we raised from mainly from family uh, around four hundred thousand dollars. And so, just to put it in perspective, my business partner, like he mortgaged the house of his parents. I took my dad left life insurance, so the stakes are be higher. Oh wow! Uh, so this is uh, fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to ask my parents to mortgage the house to give me a loan, and they're like, "Absolutely not! <laughs> you do these things, you'll do it on your own." Um, but yeah, so the idea there. But then, okay, the, the stakes were higher, but then the way we approached it was, look, worst case scenario, uh, you know, for example, for the loan that my business partner took is a 35 years loan, it's like 3% interest rates. Um, and then my, you know, my dead life insurance was there, but like, we weren't really like really using it. And so the idea was like, look, if this thing, like if everything goes wrong, like two or three years, we're just gonna look for a job and hopefully this job is gonna like pay a lot and then, you know, we're just gonna spend the next ten years like paying back that debt mm -hmm. that we had. So, are um, those loan when you get a loan like that? Is that like actually in your personal name, or is that a loan to to Moco Furniture that you can like declare bankruptcy on, or something like that? Uh, so the loan that my business partner took, I think, it was in his name, and then when he came here, like he sort of like he lent it to the company. Uh, but think mm -hmm. in the US, it's like to his name, and then we had the same uh, arrangement in Italy. Uh, but the one was like within; it was a bank was not involved. It was just like my dad transferring uh, those funds. Right. Um, so yeah, I think was because so, the loan, you know, comes from the US. So they were like, I don't know this company in Kenya. They probably never heard about Kenya. I remember when I went to Italian bank looking to financing options. Uh, they were like, You want me to invest in Kenya? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't even know what it is. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, a lot of it, I think you built on the credibility of like your parents and, and the trust that the bank has like in your family, basically. Mm -hmm. And then it comes to, into your name. Um, I guess, I don't know in the U S like, you know, people are used with the student loan. So it's like, oh, I guess I can have the loan. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, yeah. And for me, it was like, you know, it's a zero interest rates. Uh, my family is not using it now. So like if I pay over like 10 years by basically like using my salary, it shouldn't be too bad. Um, sure. Okay. But yeah, that does sound like the stakes are higher, I guess, like, even though maybe technically you could get out of paying back that loan legally, you yeah. are, there's still a personal obligation to do that. Versus if you're able yeah. to get that financing from a bank, I mean, yeah, you don't want to, but you don't feel so bad about yeah. no. walking away. Yeah. And if someone comes to me, it's like, look, I'm thinking about this idea. Like I have to invest like 400,000 of my family money. I would probably be like, is this the only idea that you can do? Is there something else that you can do? Um, I think for us, like we started small and then we built it up. And I think at each time we were sort of like consider like, okay, we're going to take this money. How are we going to use this money? Does the return investment justifies using this money? Um, right. Because for example, for the loan, uh, you don't have to take, I mean, you can take all of it, but like he was taking like small tranches and say like, I need this today. Then if I take more, I'm going to use it to do X, Y, Z. What's the return on investment that I have on X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're able to like break it down like small chunks. 
Uh, but also to be clear, you know, it wasn't just like, let me take all this money and then I figure out what I'm going to do with this money. That was more about, I'm going to take each chunk and I'm going to have a clear idea about how I'm going to use this chunk and what's going to be like the return on investment uh, from that money. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, that does raise the stakes. I, I'm also curious because um, I know I've I've seen in your emails and Dave, if you still have more questions, jump in. But because I've also seen and I've donated personally to like the the Kiva fund that you have. Yeah. So how, how does Kiva play into that uh, scenario as well? Yeah. So Kiva. So it came at a point where um, we were facing. Um, and maybe, so I need to give you a bit of background. So basically today, as I mentioned before, the first step to realize our vision, which is providing furniture, was fixing the supply chain here in Kenya. Uh, so what drive ups the cost of furniture and what drives down the quality of furniture is really about the materials that you use. Uh, it's uh, low quality materials and that you pay more than you should pay for it. Uh, and a lot of that is because the supply chain is a lot of middlemen, they cut corners and they just add a lot of markup. Uh, and so we realized that to be able to produce the furniture, we had to either manufacture these products or uh, be able to import directly from the, the, the supplier. Um, and so the way the, and that's really about building the foundation of the business. So like what the business is about today, it's to either um, manufacture or importing these materials that are used to make sofa set. And then we sell it to people that make the furniture. Mm-hmm. But now when we sell to people making the furniture, uh, we will sell to them on credit. Um, there's a big financing gap in Kenya, um, which is compi- compounded by the fact that the furniture industry, particularly the, the, the segment that we target, is a, a very informal segment. So bank will not lend to these uh, furniture entrepreneurs. And so when you um, say when you say like the informal segment or informal industry, this is do you just mean <clears throat> these are basically just people, carpenters who are yeah. kind of working on their own? It's like not an yeah, official so, business per se, or how does that yeah. work? Yeah. Yeah. So think about like you you drive on a road, you see like a lot of carpenters along the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have like any business registration. Uh, they just like set up a shack. And done some some wood, some uh, metal, um, and and then basically in that they call it like furniture district. So in that district there will be like a big guy. It's called aggregators. He'll be the one distributing the materials to all these uh, manufacturer makers. And even this the big aggregators. It will not sometimes is registered as a company, but doesn't have any formal system of accounting. Um, it doesn't pay any taxes. Um, it does not issue any ETR. Uh, which is like electronic receipt. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you ask them, like, if you go to the shop and say, ask them, what's the value of your inventory today? They wouldn't be able to tell you because they don't have any inventory system. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ask them, like, what's the revenue that you had last month? They will have to go through papers, like books of receipt that they write by hands mm-hmm. every time that they sell stuff. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, if they try to go to a bank, then the bank say, like, what's your sort of history or records of your business, uh, they will not have anything to show for that. Um, and so, so the formality the, of it, and also another big part is a, is a very small scale operation. So a lot of these carpenters, they might sell, I think five to 10 pieces of sofas um, per month. Uh, so there's a lot of like underemployment in the sectors. Uh, you know, you might have like five people working on the sofa set, um, 
but the the resources are not used at like full capacity just because the volumes are very small mm-hmm. and so th- this market existed before you got there right like yeah there were people doing this for sofas and things yeah yeah it did Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so what's happening in the furniture industry here in Kenya is that 80% of the market is scattered by this informal sector. Uh, but as people move from the low to low middle income class to like higher middle income class, they want to shop more for like more formal showrooms. So like, so like Ikea as you have in the US. Uh, and so the local industry is unable to fulfill that demand. And so what's happening is the imports of furniture is uh, taking a bigger share of the market. Is the segment which is growing the fastest within the industry is still small, but it's taking more and more just because the small artisan, you know, he knows how to make a sofa. It's very different, like thinking about how to run a business and grow that shop from 10 pieces a month to 100 pieces right. in a month because they know how to put the wood together, they know how to put the foam um, inside, but it's a very different like, skill set. Mm-hmm. And so through, through who, who is the person? So Ki- maybe we should <clears throat> yeah. explain. So Kiva is, is a way, and you might be able to explain it better than me, that you, you give like micro loans. Is it directly to people? Do, are you, is your company yeah, asking so, for a loan? How does that work? Yeah, so... Kiva is a crowdfunding platform, so people can basically lend money and then Kiva propose projects, in particularly in developing countries, that people can fund. Uh, so they have two sort of like lending schemes. Um, you can lend directly to a very macro entrepreneurs who will need maybe like 5,000 shillings most of the time, let's say, to buy two more cows for his farm. Um, that's the typical projects. Or they lend directly to what they call social enterprise, which are enterprises that have a bigger scales of operations, uh, but their goal is more like a social impact. Um, and so we applied for the second type of loans. Uh, and the way it works is, you know, we ask for a certain amount of money um, and we ask for it to be able to like serve more of the furniture entrepreneurs to which we sell today. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, uh, we have like a specific product, which is this foam that we manufacture, uh, which helps uh, some of these entrepreneurs like to increase their revenue just because uh, it's a better quality foam, but it's the same price point that you have in the market. Uh, but this, because of the price that we sell it, the furniture entrepreneurs will have like a better margin of this product. Um, and so we told Kiva, you know, if we get this money, we can expand our production capacity. We'll be able to sell like more of this product, and therefore more of these furniture entrepreneurs will be able like to increase their sales and their revenues, and also like the the margin that they get. So, um, so question for you, Fia. So, what um, yeah. what are those typical loan sizes? Because I the last I was sort of familiar with Kiva, they were only lending to individual entrepreneurs um so what what are the typical loan size or, or ranges for um what they're lending social enterprises yeah so for social enterprises between twenty five thousand dollars to fifty thousand dollars to be repaid in 18 months uh the we received fifty thousand dollars the repayment periods is 18 months and uh they most you you can negotiate the repayment schedule uh, but we have, I think we have like three or four repayment tranches. Uh, and so you just pay like 30% of like three months and then et cetera. And there are zero interest loans, which makes it like very appealing. Um, 
Kiva is tough because, and we did not realize that going into raising this loan, uh, because you know once your loan gets um, published on the Kiva platforms, you'll be competing with I think around two thousand other loans out there. Hmm. And you know, then you compete with a loan which is like thousand dollars, which is very easy to fund. And people, there's a lot of motivation for someone to put like their ten dollars and achieving the target, as opposed to like you know mm-hmm. putting ten dollars like achieving fifty thousand, which feels very far. Um, yeah. And so there's a lot of like a fair amount of work in terms of like mobilizing your network um, to be able like you know to create the momentum because you have thirty days window to be able to raise the amount and it's either you raise the full amount or you don't get anything so um, what's the, yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like most of the people then that you're like you're mobilizing your own personal networks and hey everybody come support us through kiva so what what value is kiva playing as opposed to just raising that money independently and they get a tax receipt a donation receipt or something no so kiva they do have like a, a very big customer base that donate on the platform. Um, I think it's really about like, how do you, once you're on the Kiva platform, so Kiva says like, look, I'll give you access to like hundreds of thousands of people that donate with us. But then it's your job to convince them that they should put the 10, $20 to your company rather than to someone else on our platforms. You know, we will not do that job for you. They'll give you some guidance. Um, and so I think, you know, we raised like 50,000. I don't know the exact breakdown. I would probably think like 20, 30% was like financed by friends and family, but the rest was like financed by people that, you know, they're just donated through Kiva and we just didn't know. And Did I, so I think 50, five, zero or 15, one, five. Uh, so the, the one that came from the family was probably around 30%. And so 70%, I would estimate they come from uh, Kiva donors. So people, wow. just individuals that donate on Kiva. Oh wow. um, yeah, it's a big percentage. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised. I I I didn't realize. So people are actually then just going to Kiva, and I'm on the website right now, and I just like went to Kiva, and I see you basically. I guess what you're picking your cause. Oh, I want to like donate to whatever. Yeah, low right. people in Africa, and then I, and then your thing is going to show up there. Yeah, yeah, that's how it I, works, and. So I think it's one thing that I, so if someone like, you know, would ask me like what's the lesson learned, I think it's very hard to get 50,000. The other social enterprise that I know that got to the target, uh, so Kiva basically sometimes partners with institutional donors. And so what this donor says like, you know, raise 50% of the amount on your platform and then we will will match the other 50%. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so basically right. on the platform, you're just raising 25,000 um, and then, you know, they will match the other 25%. Um, for us, what happens like a donor said, yes, we'll match it. And then the day before the profile went online, they were like, oh, we cannot do it anymore. <laughs> and so uh-huh. like, wait, what? <laughs> um, but then Kiva, what they did, they decide to match the amount that we raise within one day. And so we sort of like made a, a big marketing push that day. Uh, and I think that helps us a lot to get close to like 80%, 90% funded. And once you get to 80%, then it creates the momentum that you want so that people on the platform will be able to to fund it. And what's a marketing push for you? What are you doing? Uh, so the other thing that Kiva did was to they give us like free vouchers. Um, so basically you can go on Kiva. Um, it's like a $5 worth I mean, I think it's like $10. So they give you a code and then you can just like lend, uh, but you won't lend with your money. Uh, you will lend with like Kiva money. Uh, and it's a way for them to bring like new people 
on board. Um, and so, for example, like I with Dimagi, we just coordinate like a lot of people in the different offices across the world. Uh, they just like use these vouchers uh, to be able like to donate on mm. Kiva. Um, we ask like other people like working in big offices. Um, sometimes we had friends that had a, a very big so like following on the social network. So we asked them to concentrate those efforts those days. Um, sometimes you know we timed our parents' donation on that day as well, so we could get the matching. <laughs> Um, yeah, because basically, you know, we, it, uh, we, we didn't have a really, like, if you look for Moco furniture, you don't find anything online because basically today we, we target a market that, and particularly for the product that we sell today, like, you know, we don't sell furniture sofas yet. And so we didn't need a website. We didn't need like a social media presence. And so for us, it was very difficult to like tap into our own social media presence just because we didn't have one uh, at the time. So we just tried to uh, tap into network like friends um, that had a, a bigger following. Yeah. Yeah, that was one thing. I, I that is like guerrilla warfare marketing. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, and it was a lot of work. It was a lot of like, <laughs> because the first two weeks it was like going by. So it was like, this space, we're never going to make it. <laughs> So it's a lot of like staying up until like one or two. Also, because a lot of donors, you know, come from the U.S. And so you want to do the marketing around the time zone of the U.S. as well. Well, just as an aside, this is the type of stuff that I love is like you make a comment as like innocent as, oh, yeah, and we made this marketing effort. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. What's involved with that marketing effort? <laughs> it sounds like that was just like a yeah, I... horrendous period of time for you. Yeah, one of the habits that I developed from Nimagi was like tracking my time. Yeah. And so the last week, which was the like the week that I had to coordinate, like the day that Kiva was doing the matching and just because the other tricky thing is that Kiva, it's English only. <laughs> and a lot of my, let's say, family friends, they don't speak any English. So I literally had to be on call with them on Skype and say, click on this button. <laughs> now go down. Now there's right. a green button. <laughs> Click on the one, <laughs> put the number. <laughs> and so busy to get like $10, I tell it took me like 30 minutes of explanation. <laughs> uh, so yeah, in a week, uh, and there was just the last week, and this is like a four weeks process. So just the last week, I think it took me like 50 hours, this thing. Um, then you just like multiply by four. I think the other week was just less effort. Um, but it's it was definitely like way more effort than we anticipated to put in. Uh, which is like most of the times like this, um, but yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot of it's a lot of things that's difficult to anticipate, and um, but you know they kind of like keep you awake at night, not because you stress, but just because I had to like tell my mom how to do it because she couldn't figure it out. <laughs> right. Um, so I think one of the general questions I have for you is, is you know you keep mentioning these things, right? Like oh, I did this market research and we figured it out, and then it was all right. Well, now we have to you know upgrade the supply chain and go meet these people. Then we did Kiva and we ran this marketing thing. Um, I'm pretty sure you've never done any of those things before. <laughs> You're making it sound like it, you, it's very easy. <laughs> and I know for a fact it's not. Um, that's like what a lot of you know people that want to get started, you know, they, hit, they bump into that. They'll even hear this interview and go, Oh, well, I could never do what that guy was doing. Um, but I'm curious, like, what are the resources that you're using to figure this stuff out? Because I, I know you are just figuring it out as you go, more or less. And, like, how, how, are you, how do you get through that process? And it's more about, like, the investment or the market research or just, like, when I have to learn, like, new things, how do I go about it? 
Yeah. So, I mean, my guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my guess yeah, sure. is that every every next step in your business is like probably That's... the first time you're doing that step, right? Yep. Correct. Um, so <laughs> everything you're doing, you're you're having to learn on the job and immediately. Um, and so, like, do you have a routine? Are are you? You yeah. hear a lot of people that are like always consuming different stuff. Do you have a mentor? Or like, how yeah. how are you going? Like, what do you do when you hit a roadblock? <clears throat> Yeah, so I can give you the example. So now we about to launch our um, collection of uh, mattresses, and that's the first time that we have a product which is facing end consumer. And so we understand, and it's so the perspective which you're taking is like we sort of want to be the Casper of Kenya in terms of like innovating the people think about mattresses or the sleeping experience. So, and so, so we realized that. My, so by my count, so far you're the Casper, the Kia, <laughs> and the Alphabet that's of it. Kenya. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I know. It's uh, we play humble. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, yeah, we'll gym big. I remember like talking with my previous manager at Dimagi, and he was like, "Look, from my perspective, either this thing can reach like two millions of people, or it's not worth doing it." And so we sort of like <laughs> try to do it the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so yeah, basically we we came across okay. We have to build a brand and we have to tell a story about this brand and to people. And apparently, this brand needs to have a voice and a character and you know like a color palette. And and we're like, <laughs> what is this? How do you do this? <laughs> um, so I think what I did um, for so I think for the marketing, um, I did a couple of things. So one was um, HubSpot. Uh, which is this software company which uh, has a software for like inbound marketing, so it helps you to like attract more leads and basically like, guide the the lead of the prospect like through your website until they can actually purchase something. Um, so that, they have an academy about marketing, uh, which basically gives you so like an overview about you like a startup, you want to start like a marketing push or effort. These are like the basic things that you want to do. Um, so they give me an idea of like the main big steps. Um, then I had a, a friend um, that like she started a company in the US. She's like a travel blogger. She organized like trips for people. And, and I thought she was very good like at building. She did a very good job like building the brand. And so she was visiting at the time uh, Kenya. She was like staying in my place. And so like one night I was like, I need like two hours of your time. I was like, so I need to do, build the brand. <laughs> Uh, how do I do this? <laughs> uh, I've heard about social media, like how do you do this? Um, and so that helps me sort of like visualize uh, a bit more like chatting with her. Um, and then what else did it do? Yeah, and then I think another step was, um, so we realized that particularly for like, you know, brand being like the first step is you build this uh, brand guidelines, which is like a book that tells like, this is how the logo is going to look like. This is how... And uh, the um, the um, the color is going to look like this is how the picture styles. And so I approached so, different marketing uh, company. Who taught you that? How did you know? Okay, for a brand marketing, I need to have this book. And this is what I, I remember how, how the question. That step. Yeah. So to that step, I remember it was a very specific question to like this friend of mine, and I was like, "So what is the first step? Like, what do you do?" Um, and she told me that. And the same time, we so we piloted the mattresses uh, back in November. So we did like 50 units, <clears throat> and then we want, we sold them through supermarkets. So at that time, we had to do some labels 
for the matches. And so we went to graphic designer and I was like, can you make a label for our brand? I can tell you like more or less the demographics of our people. And they were like, look for a graphic designer to be able like to capture the character and the essence of your brand. You need this thing called like brand book or brand guidelines. And I was like, I never heard of it. Can you show me something that you did? <laughs> and so she sent me a sample of that. Um, and I got a sense of it. Um, and so, so yeah, be like talking to this person. I think like a very big part is um, figuring out your, I think they call it like minimum viable audience. So like the really the people that you want to target. Um, and so I think what we're doing now is to like narrow that down to say like, this is the people that we want. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I learned that by reading, I followed this blog from Seth Godin. And I think he mentioned like in some of the, his blog posts about like minimum viable audience. So I read it up the concept a bit. Um, then I realized like part of the minimum viable audience is building a customer persona. So the one I was just like Googling HubSpot, there's a lot of resources about that. I found that they're very like American, um, so like specific. So you have to adapt it a lot uh, here. Um, but then it gives you sort of like an overview. Mm-hmm. That's like how a customer persona should look like. Um, and then, yeah, so like, so like talking to someone in the marketing space, uh, not even in the market space, someone that like you think, you know, did like a good job with like their brand, uh, so like resource online. Uh, and then what we did is, um, we approached different marketing. Yep. So it, it sounds like, um, and cause so one of the thing, one of the, the barriers that I have, and I think a lot of people have is like you don't want to look like you don't know what you're talking about yeah. or you're like, or you're like embarrassed to go, to go ask someone for something. It doesn't sound like you suffer from that, from, from that quality very much. Like you're willing to just go, what am I supposed to do? And then they tell you like, well, where's all the stuff you're missing? Yeah. I remember that something I learned while I was a, a Dimagi. Uh, I remember I was on a call with like one of my manager and this guy was talking about, I think it was like mobile money project. And the manager just like asked like a ton of question. Um, and I was like, oh wow, like I thought it was like a senior management, like you couldn't ask all this question. You should like, you know, it's one of your potential customers. So like you should pretend to know some of this stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, it's not beneficial in the long term, even the medium term, because if you don't know something that like you won't be able yeah. to, to like that- do it that way that the customer wants. Um, that's that's really funny. I, I have the same story when I I first started working in consulting, <laughs> like IT consulting, yeah. and uh, we were in this meeting with like all these directors at this finance company. Like we were just doing the IT part, but it was like pretty high up people, you know. And they're going blah blah blah. They're all talking, and it's and I'm like I just need to be quiet and <laughs> using some acronym, right? They're like we need to do this HNS thing, and finally I was like I, I just have to ask. I was like I'm sorry, what does HNS stand for? And then like the boss was like, uh, Bill, do you know? And, and like it went around and it turned out just no one in the room even knew. <laughs> what <are you> doing? <laughs> Everyone's like, I don't know. I, I have never even, you know, like, oh, okay. These, nobody knows anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, I mean, this is a really interesting point. I think, cause like this is, you know, this is one of the things I think everyone's, it lacks not everyone, but often you just sort of lack the confidence like, oh, everybody else, I should know this. And everyone does that. And so we're often just left in this place. Like this yeah. is one of the big breakdowns in communication, I find, 
And so what like I've worked really hard at being comfortable just saying like two things, like just asking the question when I don't know and not being embarrassed that I actually don't know what it is. Um, and then the other is to like ask people to explain things in a way to me, like talk to me like I'm a, a child because yeah. <laughs> you don't, they just start using a whole bunch of terms. Like, and I'm, I'm experiencing this a lot in the organization that I'm working for now. Um, in that, like, I'm just trying to get my head around things and people are using acronyms terms that everyone's familiar with, but like you just, you'll get up to speed way slower and it's just a lot more. I find like the most intelligent people aren't afraid and the people yeah, I'm most like, aren't afraid to just say, yeah, explain that to me. Like I'm two. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very true. And I think sort of like asking those questions asking the why of things, that's something like I work a lot with my team, the market research team. It's like, look, you really have to ask like five times the why to get to the bottom of it. And mm -hmm. I think that's what also like opens up opportunity for your business. I'll give an example. So we were thinking about introducing uh, foam uh, and, and I'm really talking about like foam cushions. So, like when you sit on your couch, you're sitting like in a foam cushion. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we went to our customers and they were like, what type? Then we, bring, we brought some samples and they were like, look, you have to make this foam very hard. And when I say hard, it's like hardness, almost like wood. You know, from our perspective, like, you know, why would you make foam so hard? And, and the answer was, that's how it is in the market. So we sort of like ask other people, like, why do you want it so hard? And like, I don't know, that's what people want. And so basically you realize like your customer base, which is like the people that are using that on a daily basis, like they don't know. They just like go with the flow because that's how it is. And so we decided like, to go to the like end consumer, which is like the one like shopping for it. And so we're asking like, you know, why do you like hard? And you just like try to find different entry point. Um, and, you know, sort of thinking is like, oh, what about, you know, I give you like a very soft mattress, but like it lasts long. Uh, what would you think? It's like, oh, actually I would enjoy that. And I was like, what do you like about the hardness? Do you just like, like it? Why, if it's so hard, like, why don't you sleep on the floor and don't just pay all this money for the sofa, or for the mattress? So you're sort of like, you know, question what's perceived mm -hmm. to be like, the conventional wisdom. And then once you start like poking holes, uh, sometimes you get like raised eyebrows. So, like, what do you mean? Like, it needs to be hard. That's how it is. But sometimes, you know, what we found out in the end was it wasn't really like they wanted hard, they want something durable. Um, but the way the foam is made in Kenya is that, um, you know, you make it harder to make it like more durable, even if like you can actually make foam, which is very durable, which just doesn't have to be that hard. And so then you understand like, oh, you want to make a foam which is durable, not necessarily a foam that is just hard. Because right. the problem from the people perspective is the durability is not the hardness. No one in particular enjoys sitting on a piece of wood. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Even if like, you know, the first level of market research was like, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> so the way we make this foam is we buy waste foam from around the world. So let's say there's a mattress factory in Europe. They will have to cut the foam that we need and they will have half cut. That's like uh, uh, something that they sell. So we buy it, then we trim it and then we glue it together to make a new type of foam. Um, so at some point the feedback was like, oh, we want it hard. So then we were like, should we just put some piece of concrete into this foam <laughs> <laughs> to make it so hard? Um, but yeah, I think the bottom line was really like, um, and I think that just for one product line, but there's like so many other product lines that we had the same experience. Um, and so yeah, really like poking holes and asking like as many why as possible until you start like getting like, oh, I think that's the bottom of it. It takes a while. Yeah. I love that's, that. That's, that's a, that's a fantastic story. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, and it also like led to me wanting to ask twenty more questions about <laughs> met these people in Europe, and every time I talk, I'm just like, he did seven more things that he doesn't even think are a big deal that I want to ask about. Um, but I do want to be mindful. We're, we're about at the hour. We are at the hour mark right now. Um, so why don't we sort of start to wrap up or along the lines of like, what what are your sort of next steps and immediate sort of challenges and hopes for the future? <laughs> Um, okay, so I start from the next steps. Um, so I think next step is to build up our senior management team from like a people management perspective. Um, I th we're really keen on, I think back to the point of like creating employments within the country, like we're really keen on like creating an organization that it's really like Kenya driven. Uh, so today in the company we have 55 people and just me, the co-founders are from outside Kenya, but the rest is all like all Kenyans. Um, and so to be able like, to facilitate this approach, we, um, you know, we hire a lot of like young talent, we try to coach them to reach manage management position, but we realize like, you know, if you want to be head of production, you do need to have some like experience. Um, and so I think from like the founder perspective, we need to invest more time, like building the senior management in the short term, just because building young talent, it takes time and we don't have that time. Mm -hmm. Um, so the next step, uh, in terms of. Uh, expansion uh, we want to so like test develop and test the the brand uh, for the matches which will be the same for um, for the for the softwares uh, we want to try a direct to consumer uh, sales channel which is basically like a showroom so we'll take a, a container we sort of like pimp it we make it nice so like put some glass on the side uh, and we want to try to like sell direct to consumer to the showroom so we want to test the model um, and then we want to um, so like dramatically increase the production of foam because it's the same foam because there's a lot of a big market out there and there's also uh, it's the same foam that we use for mattresses so like to, for example to go to supermarkets we need to be able to do very big volumes so that's on the production side of things or just like the business side of things um, we're spending like a fair amount of time like fundraising right now like because we, we think by next year's we'll need like to raise equity um, I think one of the next steps, less challenges um, that we had is um, building like a culture within the company um, in the sense, just to give a sense, 35 people are general workers, so the workers that operate machines, they come from like very low income households. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the companies, like they went to university and they're just like the way they look at the world, like it's very different. And so I remember when I was at Dimagi, it was a very googly uh, culture in the sense that, you know, everyone comes from the same tribe. And when I say tribe, it's like, it's the same background. You just like understand each other. Uh, whereas I realized like within our company, people come between, from different tribes just because of the social uh, background is different. And so one of the questions in our mind is like, how do we bridge that gap? And how do we have like general workers like to move from the mindset of like, I'm just working for this company. I'm putting some fiber into a bag the whole day. I just want my money to more about like, oh, I really want to like have this company grow. And I feel part of this company as part, as opposed to like, it's me versus the company. Um, yeah, so that's like one of the challenge, I guess I can have like a long list of challenges, uh, but I think it's, it's sort of to the question of Nick is like, I have no idea how to do that. Uh, one thing that we thought to do is like, we sort of like envision how we want the company to look like. We have some like culture principles, but I think different people from different background will, 
um, we see this principle like be implemented in different ways. Um, so if you ask you like what's team building looks like for me, it's different from what looks like for you, it's different from like what looks like from like a general workers. And so we really like we we're basically doing the same like market research approach, like we're doing focus group discussion with our teams to say like, look, we, we want to be a point where like you feel part of the company, feel like be part of the team, like how do we get there? And we just like brainstorm ideas. And then basically like, every quarter we want to have goals around one or two priority ideas uh, just to make you know culture more operational from our sure. side as well. Well, cool, man. Um, hopefully if you're up for it, we'll be able to check back in with you and <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not sure what the right time period is, three months, six months or so, and see how those next things are going. Yeah, we'll check in. I think so. Yeah, I think like three or four months, the mattresses and the showrooms, we should be able to test it. Uh, the culture will definitely have done something around that side of things. Uh, so we have to touch base at that time. Nice. And I think the one advice, and I am trying to wrap up because I think our we've gotten some yeah. feedback. We don't want to go too far over an hour, but <laughs> the one the one suggestion I would make is like online, I would love to have something where I can follow Moco and follow either you. Yeah. Or follow Moco. <laughs> we don't my social feeds. Like, it would keep it on my mind. Uh, and then, um it might also help you build your employee community too. Like if maybe they're the ones that manage that process right or something yeah um but it's a cool story i would love to follow you and i think a lot of people would especially uh you know folks that are donating and stuff as well yeah no i think that i think kiva as part of the kiva like we'll give like updates every month uh through the kiva platforms um uh -huh. but i think the next step is like <clears throat> building like a social media like strategy and i think a part of it will also tell you the story like we're making mattresses how do we get from buying bra foam from China to a mattress in Kenya. I'll tell you more next time. <laughs> yeah. you, are you on Instagram? Uh, I am, but just for my private profile, there's no, uh, which I don't use much. Uh, we don't so, have from Moco yet. What I, I mean, honestly, what I would do for you is just you know, maybe you don't have the time or you don't agree, but for what it's worth, one man's opinion, take out Instagram stories and just like, document like when you're out going out to talk to a supplier you just like record yourself for two minutes before like <laughs> hey here's where i am i'm going in now to discuss like this new foam or buying this material or whatever and you're just doing that five minutes here or five minutes there throughout your days and it's just like the documentation of what you're doing that's fascinating i'd like i'd be watching it regularly because i'm really <laughs> curious um, and it doesn't, it just really doesn't take any effort on your part other than the few minutes to stop and take a selfie and record yourself for that video. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think, good. yeah, we can wrap up. I, so one question on my mind is like, what is, I'll be like, oh, I guess this is the normality for us. And we know it's like, you know, people that follow us, like in angel investors or investors later on. Um, but I think, so like asking who is that for, it would also like inform us like what's the content and the form that's like interesting and engaging for the audience. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. All right. Well, great, man. Well, thanks so much, Fio. So that's- No, it's, thanks for all the questions. It was fun. No, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's been a while since we've chatted as well. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> so great. Well, well, thanks a lot. So that's Fiorenzo Conte. It's Moco Furniture in Kenya. Uh, I think you can maybe still find the thing on Kiva if, if you want to see the profile at least. Um, otherwise, as soon as he gets his social media up and running, we'll send everybody the link. Oh, sure. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Vio. All right, talk to you later. <laughs>
Talk to you later, guys. Bye. Thanks.